0: So these interventions we've seen really do work out, and that's just on the supervisor side. When to do meaningful increases, how to counteract kind of the economic environment. All these things do matter, and they help us understand how to retain people, despite what the external conditions of the labor market might be doing.
1: Saying that we live in a data-driven world is a truism, but very often we have gathered so much data, so much inputs, that we actually don't know what Do with it and this is true of any industry any department any area that we might be working in of course this also applies to hr and people functions within organizations my guest today is nick jested who according to his linkedin bio is driven and passionate about the use of data science to unlock the strategic potential of hr and boy does that drive and passion come through in our conversation. Nick has so much knowledge, so much experience, and shares some amazing, amazing examples of how to use data, how can we utilize it, what can we do with it to help with so many aspects of HR and people functions. But we focus a lot on the great resignation and attrition, keeping people, predicting why and when people might leave the organization, and what can we do to prevent that, to be proactive. If you are overwhelmed with the data you've gathered and you don't know where to start and what to do with it, this conversation is a must listen, and I don't say that lightly. By the end of it, you will know why I say that. Here's my conversation with Nick Jested. Enjoy. We Got This showcases individuals and organizations that create people-focused workplace cultures to help you become the norm rather than the exception. It's something that will require a mindset shift and probably not something that any of us can do alone. But together, together, we got this. The usual first question. The usual first question for every single guest, which I absolutely love asking, is when you were little, what or who did you want to be when you grew up? Wow. Uh,
0: certainly didn't think I was going to be human resources. When I was little, I probably didn't know what human resources meant. It probably sounded too technical. When I was very young, I think like many young boys in a, in the States, it was still the glory days of like, oh, let's go to space. Everyone wants to go to space. I want to be an astronaut. Well, that, how could you beat something like that, leaving the planet? How ambitious. So I, that captured my imagination, right, and, and got me interested. And actually, to, to some degree, it got me interested in science early and kind of math and technical space early. Certainly didn't manifest into space, long ways away from there, but it did an interest in just like technical work and kind of being curious, and that curiosity maybe maybe did follow me, even even if it didn't land me in an astronaut suit.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty certain that based on what the discussion that we already had is that some of the analytical elements of uh, the job that you do probably do link you back to uh, what you wanted to be. But the first thing that I thought of when when you said. Uh, in 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 the states i don't know whether you've seen apollo 10 and a half which is the recent animated movie by richard linklater yeah yeah brilliant movie and that's kind of where where my, my mind went being kind of and an, a young kid i imagined you actually as as the main uh, protagonist in that movie straight away uh, which is good kind scope of, i've watched it a few weeks ago and actually i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed it. it's such a good movie uh, and i watched it with my niece and my nephew and they obviously they never been to the states they they live in Poland uh, and they were really excited apart from the story. They kind of really enjoyed how to learning what it was like in the 1960s in in the US. I think it was fascinating.
0: It's, it's hard to escape even now. Almost any content that comes up, it's going to be anywhere anywhere related to it. I mean, there was that. I God, it was probably ten years ago now. But where every other movie seemed like it was dealing with something like gravity and and a trip to Mars with Matt Damon, there was a whole bunch of them. They were all great. I just consumed them entirely. So there's that curiosity. It, it, it's still there. It Has not relented.
1: So that yeah, that fascination with space is still is still uh, well and truly uh, alive. Listen, with we're on the on the precipice of uh, space flight being available to the public. You never know you never know i i wish you i wish you that one day uh, you'll be you'll be able to do that that dream uh, can uh, come true for you
0: i'll i'll take it hopefully uh hopefully career in in hr analytics pays off that i can
1: i can book one of the first trips to space either that or maybe winning the lottery i don't know being one of the lucky few one of those two i'll start playing <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you 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 weren't one of those people that dreamed of being in hr and i'm actually trying, trying to think of whether any of my guests, I'd have to go back through all the 30 odd episodes, coming up to 40, I think now. Whether they actually, anyone ever said, I dreamed of being in HR. I think it was always some sort of element. There's one thing, there's one common thread that I've picked up from the answers that I've been given that there was always a theme of servitude, of wanting to help people, wanting to support people in, in different roles, from being vets, from being servicemen, service women. All sorts of things, but they always had that servitude and support element to it that then transitioned into a learning and development, a people's person, a HR person, so on and so forth, which. There's definitely a pattern there. That's, that's, that's safe to say uh, that there is definitely a pattern. Or oh, bring joy. I had two guests who both said they wanted to be ice cream vendors, you know, having an, an ice cream truck and selling ice cream out of that. Which for me, it was associated straight away with, with giving kind of joy and happiness to people. That's kind of what my association was. And that's how they presented it as well, which was fascinating.
0: Yeah, I love that. I was going to say, I, I came from a family that was very service-oriented, kind of. So that was ingrained. And part of how I stumbled my way into HR is probably a little bit of that, probably this passion for people that I've always innately had, and then to see and kind of see this career take shape. But I'll tell you specifically to like people analytics, so to speak, and just kind of when I was in university, I studied computer science and math, you know, and so you're meeting all my peers are by and large, this is a stereotype, but by and large, not people, people. That's not, their passion was not about being an expert. Their Their passion was for numbers. And I had that same passion and yet it was conjoined with a passion for people. And I was like, I don't know where I fit or where this job fits. And so I was kind of coming out of university in the start of people analytics, so to speak. I was like, oh, this is almost perfect, right? This is almost perfect. It is this co-joined passion area for people and numbers and to be data-driven while also supporting kind of a group of people that you want to maintain their happiness. And you want to keep them around and you want to keep them kind of thriving, so to speak. So it was—it's the career found me more than I found the career, probably.
1: Well, that's good. That's good that you've you've had that opportunity. That you know uh, something found you because there's there's an element, and I, I've recently been talking to a few of my friends who are actors in most mostly musicals, and they absolutely love what they do. It's tiring. It requires a lot of energy, time investment, giving up a, a lot of. Social life to a certain extent, because it's kind of fixed schedules and things like that. And, and it's very, very difficult to them. And they're debating what to do with, them, with themselves, because there is an, a kind of an age part to it, where despite being in their 30s or early 40s, for some of them, it, they're nearing the end of their career uh, in it's musical theater. So they tend, there tends to be a cast, if you're not kind of an A-lister in that world, there's an element of pass your due date, basically, because there's younger talent coming through and younger roles that need, kind of need to be filled right? And we were talking about this and I'm going, you've, you've got this thing that most people absolutely would kill to have, and that is satisfaction and fulfillment from what you do. People are chasing that in majority of the roles for organization, corporations, and companies, startups, whatever industry, whatever you know, size or, or, or scale. And they, they have this. And for them to go into a normal normal job, in quotation marks, would be very, very difficult. Apart from reskilling is one thing, but yes, of course, they would be able to do that, finding that they would have to start at the bottom of the ladder in most cases. But that f- lack of fulfillment, not being having that fulfillment and satisfaction from what they do, I think would potentially give them a more massive whiplash of switching to that career and potentially being completely miserable as a result.
0: Absolutely. point about reskilling, it's a really good one, and, and the ability to reskill. But if you don't have a passion for what you do, That's what makes work or a career, I guess. I I don't know if you can have a career without passion. I think you can work without passion, but it's hard to have a career without passion because it doesn't become a part of you. It's not part of you. I mean you do it, you go every day, you make money, you do what you need to do. But to have to, to create a career where you're driven, it just matters, it means something. I think that comes from saying, I really like what I do. It matches my skill set, it matches my energy, it, it matches kind of, you know. And there's going to be sacrifices. There's days where I love what I do and there's days, I'm sure like you, where it's still like, I do not know if I want to do this today. I am not in the mood, I'm not feeling it. But when it clicks, it clicks really
1: well. I think there's a lot of people who like what they do, but they're not fulfilled or satisfied, and there is that lack of there's that gap which is, which is which I think is still not too bad because I believe everybody's entitled to be satisfied and fulfilled by what they do, and I mean truly satisfied and fulfilled, not content, not having the that will do no but genuinely satisfied and fulfilled by what they do, but I feel. I don't know why, maybe I'm being too pessimistic here, but I feel that most people are not. In the best case cases, I, I see that people like what they do, but not necessarily fulfilled. So, And if that works for them, I think that's, uh, that's most important. That's what matters. But I think there's still a gap and building a career is more again going through the motions as you you said rather than actually being drawing energy from that and getting energy from that in a positive sense
0: yeah i agree with that completely i think what you're just hit the sweet spot if you can get energy from work not just give it but if you can get energy back because we're all giving energy to work but the ability to get energy back is so fulfilling and it is rare i you know i don't know if it's pessimistic or realistic or whatever it may be but i think it is so difficult to find that that sweet spot, so to speak, where you get energy back.
1: Mm, I don't think it's it's possible to have that all the time. I'm not naive enough to to think that, that you always kind of just get energy. As you said, there are some days they just absolutely don't don't want to do that. And you know what? That's, I think that's fine. If it happens every day for, for a prolonged period of time, I mean, weeks and months, then I would be concerned. But if it happens sporadically every now and again, I think that's kind of just normal up and that uh, up and down of, of of life i'm loving this conversation however i want to get to the crux of why you are here because when mindy honcoop uh, a guest on this show some time ago introduced or suggested to you as a guest and i looked at your linkedin profile i'm going yes i want to have the ins and outs of data and people analytics in HR. I want to get into that topic as much as I can. And I'll tell you the reason for that. I'm conflicted when it comes to data. For all sorts of reasons, I'll leave ethics to the side for maybe uh, later in in the conversation, maybe for even for a separate conversation. My background is in marketing, and marketing has always been, or at least in the last few decades, obsessed with data, 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 data. And that spills over not just to marketing. Any department, any kind of facet, any part of organizations is all about data, data, data. But my big annoyance when it comes to that is that we gather all this data, and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what it's for, or we we misuse it, or or we use like five percent of its potential. And I'm really curious from a person with your background, with your knowledge, with your experience, I'd like us to focus on the element of HR of people and data science and in, in HR. <laughs> To be honest, it's such a big question. I actually, on the spot here, I'm trying to think which angle to start at it in terms of setting the scene, what data in HR is and how can it be utilized? I think I want to start with just kind of looking at it very, very broadly as, as we can. What type of data is actually genuinely useful in HR? Rather than kind of grabbing all the data we've got, from your point of view, what do you think is the most useful data that we can start gathering from kind of... Today onwards,
0: yeah, I think it's a really good question. Honestly, I mean, you kind of tapped onto it. There's so much data in corporate world now. I mean, what is it? There's more data produced in, in a day than we we used to have in, in entire years. And this is kind of off the cuff, but to your point, so much data, so complex. It's in some cases overutilized. It's some cases underutilized. And then there's the ethical challenges, which maybe we'll get into because that is uh, a really really important part, especially in the people side of things. When we started at the company I'm with now, when we started kind of understanding what data science or data analytics was gonna mean in HR, we didn't start super complex and we didn't start what I would call super sexy. We started with kind of the the bare minimum what data do we have? What questions are we being asked? What questions can we answer? And what questions can't we? Because we don't have the data to answer those questions. So we kind of did this full inventory. And it was a data gap analysis to, I guess, use the specific technical term of what do we have? What do we want? And what what do we need ultimately? And some of the questions were super simple. Where do we have people? Where are we growing? Where are we shrinking? What's the best way to kind of grow a team in an area that's cost effective, but also allows for genuine growth of those people to kind of move up to the organization? And some of those questions are really business-driven, same questions that they would ask finance or IT or marketing, right? That they'd say, can you support this with data? And I came to an organization where HR said, well, we can't support with data. Not really. We don't have that infrastructure built out yet. So we started fairly innocently. What do we want to know? And what can we answer now? And what can't we answer, but we can start to collect? We tend at our company not to use any data that is kind of what I would call your own data. Uh, I know some folks, especially in the early days of trying to use people analytics, use things like marital status and what benefits you elected. And these things that you kind of, that kind of tap into what your personal life might look like. And there was this whole curiosity of what does this person's life look like? What are they motivated by? What are they driven by at home? And how can we make work look like that? And to me, that, that honestly became pretty invasive. In some cases, that's, that's really driving into, I want to know everything about you based on your work environment. And I don't think that's fair. I think in the work environment, I need to know what your work environment looks like and what is work, because what drives you at work might be different from what drives you at home. So let's not make assumptions. So we started with a data inventory of the things that matter at work. What company do you work with? How long have you been with your supervisor? Have you had a lot of supervisor changes? Things that we were curious about that we wanted to almost A, B test for, does it have an impact? But we didn't want to touch anything that became personal in a traditional sense. Now, if things like diversity and equity and inclusion, that kind of this whole trend that's happening in HR, we touch a little bit of that demographics, of gender and ethnicity in the States, you know, we get to some of that. But at, when we started, it was much about your assignment. Where we found really valuable data is not just what team you work with and what supervisor you work with, but like, what's the economy doing? That's not your data. That's just what's happening outside the company. And we've even looked at things like, what was the economy doing when you were hired? And what's it doing now? And I'll give you an example of that. Because the economy is, is a very personal thing, almost, but if you join in a period of really economic turmoil, I'll say, you managed to get a job when jobs were scarce, you're really thrilled that the, the, you got a job, you landed a job, you'll take anything. And that job may not be a perfect fit because you were looking for a job in general. Perhaps you were out of work and the economy was a little unstable. If you joined at that period of high uncertainty in the economic landscape, And you've now come to a period of more economic stability, I'll say, more thriving. It went from an employer market to the employee market. In your experience, you joined an instability and you've now seen kind of employees, your own personal thrive. Opportunities now seem boundless and limitless. And maybe you're going to leave now because your experience has been a growth of certainty. More opportunities, I might leave. I now, things that didn't frustrate me now frustrate me because I feel like I have more kind of highway to work with. I have more that I can say, I demand this, my demands matter, and I'm going to kind of go into that market. Let's say alternatively, somebody joins the company during a period of really high economic stability. Everything seems certain. They had a lot of options to choose from, and they chose you. And maybe they've since had some frustrations, but it's gotten more economically uncertain. They may be increasingly likely to stay with your organization and put up with a lot more because their experience has been in the reverse. So things like, it's not about that person at all. It's just about when did they join the organization? What was the economy doing at that point versus where are they now? That's been a huge tell for us as far as like retention likelihood. And it has nothing to do with their personal lives. It doesn't become invasive in that sense. It's just looking at data that matters. And a big part of the data that matters is what's happening in the labor market. That tells us a lot, especially tells you a lot when you start to combine it with things like Who's my supervisor? How long have I had them? Like I mentioned, you know, what's my compensation versus market? Am I growing here? And how long does it take me to grow here? What's kind of my experience? These things do matter because people shape their careers around that. And so those data points are just about their career experience with our organization. That seems safe for one, but it's also been incredibly intuitive. So we're not data mining. I know data mining, kind of this like, let's look for things. Marketing does this all the time. HR does it all the time. Finance does it all the time, right? You're kind of building models and you don't know what you're looking for. I would challenge and say, start with a hypothesis first. At least when I was studying, when I started my career in in analytics, not even people analytics, but it started with, have a hypothesis before you collect data. Don't throw a bunch of data into something and say, tell me what I should know. I think that becomes dangerous.
1: Wow. um, I've already... Kind of got my money's worth, I think, for this for this interview. Because in, in that in that simple sense, because you opened my mind. I don't know. It might seem basic for, for 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 the listeners and for for many people, but for me, I actually did not kind of correlate the two, as you said, because we always think about data. We've got this data, and we we not to mention the fact that you kind of go in narrow, rather than grabbing all the data that's available, our people's individual private lives. You you focus it just on uh, their work with that specific. kind of bracket of what it is, that hypothesis, as you said, that you are looking at, rather than just kind of getting the data and modulating so that it fits whatever you want it to fit. The biggest thing that I really like about what you said is you then take that data and you don't look at it in isolation, but you correlate it with, for example, the economy which I think is is a brilliant way of doing it and again would never uh, occur to me maybe there's a reason I'm not a data scientist but there you go but I think it's particularly valuable because we're recording this in in uh, at the end of June in 2022 obviously economy in the world is in in a state of flux, to, to put it politely, there's some question marks over, over a number of issues, but I think it's it's definitely something that will be useful to to look at in terms of the data, as as you said. Quick segue, when you say a, a gathering data for a, a narrow set, what does gathering data look like? Is it surveys? Is it interviews? How does that look?
0: Yeah, so we kind of use it through a few different ways. First of all, like we have a core HR system and depending on companies of different sizes, almost every company of of, you know, a moderate size has some HR capture system where, you know, when somebody joined your organization, when they left your organization, any meaningful milestones that happened, you know, they were promoted or perhaps they got a salary change or they transferred to another group. Usually that data is is pretty well captured. Now I say that just because that's kind of your raw, that's your system, that's your kind of very categorical, clean, so to speak, data. But even there, when we did our data inventory, there were things we weren't capturing well, certainly. Like, transfers. We said transfer. We weren't capturing dates. We weren't capturing some of this just fundamental stuff that would help us tell a more complete and holistic story. So some of it was just, hey, this data is captured. We captured this. It's about just kind of their assignment. And the data details we need to know. It's very quantitative. It's very event focused. Um, and there were gaps. There were things we weren't capturing that we wanted to make sure that we captured meaningfully. And even just putting... annotating it to some extent. Like, hey, you're getting a salary increase when everybody's getting a salary increase versus you're getting a salary increase off cycle because we wanted to keep you in some capacity and we figured we'd throw some money at you. So these kind of event-based data is captured in a system. But even there, start there. Say if you're trying to come up with your data strategy and figure out what data you need, start with what data do you have and what do you feel like you should capture as part of their assignment that you may not be or maybe it's not clean. The process is not clean. Now, we augment that, of course, with some voluntary data captures. So, things like, hey, we want to help you shape your career with our company. So, tell us your interests. This is where we invite you to say, do you want to work for other groups? What other groups do you want to work for? Do you have passion? Do you want to grow in certain areas? How soon do you want to see yourself growing? Now, that's not mandated at our company. You can tell us that. You don't have to. It does give us a Limited data set for us to kind of do this deeper analysis on interests matching kind of career paths and some cool stuff that we've done there in just decision tree modeling. And then the last piece, of course, is surveying. So surveying gets us that that color, perhaps, a little bit more qualitative, even if it sometimes is still numbers. but data about the experience. Do you feel like there's a sense of belonging? Do you feel like there's opportunities to grow? Do you feel respected at your organization? Do you feel as if talking you through... What's going on in the organization, there's a level of trust and transparency. So that data, especially on a human level, is so important. And we've captured that through surveys.
1: And is this anonymized?
0: So it is what I'll call confidential. I mean, we work with a vendor to do our survey. We give them tags. So if they were picking on me, you'd say, hey, we know that this survey response came from HR, and it came from the United States, and perhaps it came from somebody with more than five years of tenure, right? With those things are captured, but my specific name and kind of my identity to it is not. And then just to predict or to, uh, protect from like that narrowing in where you say, well, yeah, I know that's the only HR person in the States with five years of tenure. We, we limit the ability to see any specific group if it's less than 10. And I think a lot of vendors and groups do that, less than 10, less than five. They sort of have like confidentiality thresholds. So you can't pick on a specific person and see if they are happy or not. So we, we do limit that. Uh, so anonymous in a true sense, but anonymous behind a layer of confidentiality.
1: Okay. The reason I ask for that is because a lot of people do feel concerned about answering these assumptions. I like the fact that you said that, you know, anything that you do, any surveys and kind of engagement is voluntary. So people are kind of doing it out of their own volition, which is great. But a lot of these things tend to be mandated. And one of the biggest objections that people have is... But they'll know who said this, that, you know, that I'm thinking of moving on and that I'm unhappy and therefore people are either not answering or answering not truthfully uh, Basically, on the representative of what, what's important to them. Uh, which is for me is always a bit, a bit of a, a dilemma. It's a concern for me. It's a dilemma. I'm, on one hand, I'm a big, big believer that all surveys should be, everything should be open not anonymized open because i believe that we should be able to say everything that we want to say uh, about what's important to us uh, what matters to us what our needs are without having the fear of repercussions as a result of that but for example saying i'm not going i don't like here, here, i don't get along with my boss i want to leave i'm just i'm just kind of skiving i'm just um, you know floating through this I think we should be able to have these conversations. On the other side, I know that not many people share such a belief, and I know even more that it's more dif- It's very difficult to achieve that level of psychological safety and openness and trust and vulnerability. Many, many things go into that. But I'd like us to to, to continue with uh, with that thread because in our pre-recording uh, conversations, we l- we talked about how we can utilize data not only for for driving happiness, satisfaction and engagement, which is obviously linked to uh, the second part of of, uh, where I'm going with this, but that is preventing people from leaving organizations because this is a big topic for probably every single time but 2022 has been seen particular interest post-pandemic great resignation and all that shebang to put, for lack of a better word in terms of what's going on I think there's a coin, the phrase that's been coined for this uh, whether it's true what industries and so on so forth that's, that's a separate point but nonetheless attrition and uh, staff retention are, are very very important how can we utilize or how do you utilize the data that you've mentioned to help you understand when people might leave, for what reasons, and potentially how to retain them. Very, very broad question, open question purposefully, because I'd like you to kind of take it from from your point of view, where you think is most important.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And hopefully I can do it in two pieces because a lot of folks in in analytics and people analytics especially are like, well, let's get predictive. We want to get predictive. By all means, we do some predictive stuff. I'm excited to talk about kind of our alternative to turnover. But I'll start with turnover and the metric of turnover because it's accessible and a lot of folks use it or have it or, or at least know how to capture it or know what it's about. Turnover, number of people that have left divided by the average headcount in that time period, pretty standard base level metric. Uh, It's not my favorite metric in the world, and I'll talk to you a little bit about why. But I also don't want to disparage it because I know a lot of people need it and use it. It's a good way to start, and I'll give you an example. Starting first with just turnover: who left your organization and when? If you can start to isolate that by groups, and I don't just mean you know what countries you might be—we're a global company—what countries might be losing people, or uh, what functional areas might be losing people, but when. When are you losing people by tenure groups? When are you losing people by level? And so starting to do the intersectionality of that. So, hey, we're losing people in Australia. Great. In Australia, what group is it? And what year, you know, what year of tenure are they leaving? What are these hotbeds? And in a traditional HR model, if you have the support, using turnover as a metric, it kind, of, it kind of be this heat map, shows you where there's turnover, where there's issues, then you can Activate your HR business partners and say, can you go and do some focus groups and some interviews and figure out the why? And can we get some, can we color that group? Can we bring in that survey data from that particular same subset and start to understand what the issues might be? Turnover works there. It becomes a little bit of a, what I'll call a scavenger hunt, perhaps. You get the clues, you start following threads, you pull on those threads, you ask the right questions. In some cases, you do groups of people and you kind of just bring them into an intimate setting and ask them these questions uh, through HR. And they'll tell you the truth in some cases, but also, you know, it might be veiled, thinly veiled. Turnover does matter in that that sense. And if you have the ability to do turnover and this is where you're starting, I encourage any organization to look at turnover in that sense where any cut can happen within the, the data that they capture. So they understand the hotbeds, And not just the red flags, you're losing a lot of people here, but the green flags. You're doing incredibly well with retention, especially year over year. Can we go figure out why and how can that kind of expertise be shared? On the predictive side, why we've kind of, we still do turnover. I'm not going to say we don't, but why I don't love it that much is because turnover is very point in time. How, what percent of headcount did you lose over the last year? Great. That's interesting. But- And I'll do a quick example. Let's say that three years ago, your company went through a major acquisition or a major hiring spree, and you had a bunch of people hire because you were growing. Let's say that on average, folks stay for about three years. Let's just say that they stay with the organization at your organization in particular for three years. That's their kind of time time before they start to, to consider new opportunities. Three years ago, you had a huge hiring spree. This year, you're seeing enormous turnover. And you're starting to say, what's wrong? Why are we losing all these people? You're not. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's changed. But you hired people three years ago, and now they're hitting that inflection point where they say, I've made my choice, I'm leaving. And your executives start to panic. What's going on? What's happened? What do we do? Nothing's happened in this particular year that couldn't have evolved in the previous year. You're not doing anything new that's causing this. You just didn't respond to the fact that you needed to elongate that three-year likelihood of staying. So we've started to use something called survival analytics. Came out of epidemiology, it's much the same way you kind of look at things like, you know, and this gets a bit morbid, so I apologize. But when they look at cancer patients, for example, or patients for any terminal illness, and I say, well, your likelihood uh, of surviving the next six months, your likelihood of making it to a year, 18 months, whatever, is based on everyone else that's been through that and the survival likelihoods. They've kind of built this threshold to say, how long will you make it? So I wish I could claim credit for it. We just implemented it. We didn't do it first. Um, but some organizations cutting edge organization that can we do that? Can we look at tenure or the time in a role with the organization and start to see how likely you stay? How likely are you to make it to a year of tenure, two years of tenure, three years of tenure? If you wanted to use it in retail, how likely are you to make it to six months, eight months, 12 months? You know, These can be a really helpful way to look at when people are at risk of leaving your organization. What this has done is given us a probabilistic, and this is so cool, I love our, our application here, and I, I, uh, not just ours, I think many folks are starting to tap into this, but when do people leave? Who is leaving? Not why, necessarily, although we can, we can tease that out, but when. And what we found is that between two and three years, that's when they're at their steepest risk level, if we're looking at time and role. At two years, between two and three years, no matter the role level, for us, and that may be different, that's when people say, something has to happen now. I need a promotion. I need a new stretch assignment. I need a job rotation. I need a new supervisor and new growth opportunities. Something has to change because at two years, I'm expecting something to be different or I'm going to leave. So between two and three years is when we've seen our biggest risk window. Now we can see that risk window shift a bit for sales versus services. We can see that risk window shift for folks in engineering or or software engineers versus the folks in, in HR or finance. And we can start to play with those same kind of um, switches you might use for turnover to see who's high and low to shift when are people at risk of leaving and not. And this has made us a lot more accurate with like budgeting when people will leave because it it talks more about their uh, shelf life, so to speak, how long people will stay with your organization, but also lets you to be much more meaningful and deliberate with when you intervene so that you're saying, hey, you know, I can be really deliberate about getting involved in their career in their first six months and you should. But you can't do that, say, great, I did it. I'm done. They have all the resources that they need and not check back in at two years. Because two years is when they're starting to have that conversation with themselves that say, I think I'm going to go somewhere else unless you keep them. And so the ability to tap into that has been so helpful. And you can bring in so much other data, some of the economic stuff we talked about, but I can I can go to a number of different factors, but some ways to just further hone that the predictability of when people might leave your team.
1: There are so many avenues I want to go here now. And I'm trying to discern and kind of group which bits I'm curious and I've got an opinion on with what would actually be useful to find out from you. And I'm I'm going to go with what would be useful to find out from you as a data expert. Because I think just to very briefly mention what you said about the, the predictability and the risk of people at two or three years uh, into the career, and they want something new. I am curious how much of that is dependent with our lack of patience when it comes to development and we want things quick and here and now, which is more of a cultural societal part of our lives these days compared to 20 years ago or the previous generations where they tend to go into industries or jobs for life. I'll leave that to the side because there's another thing that I'm curious. Okay, so you, you've got this data, you, you're getting really good at predicting when people will start getting itchy. How have you been using? Can you, you use any data that you've of gathered, you've been gathering, to help that person be happier? So basically, prevent them from leaving.
0: Yeah, uh, it's really good. So the, speaking mm-hmm. on the intervention track, I'll give a few examples that we've used. So one of our big ones is we're a global company, which means. We have some folks that are managers that sit in Europe that have a team in India. We have some managers that sit in India that have a team in the United States. We've sort of seen this kind of play out. And uh, I wanted to test, this again came from a hypothesis that, hey, and this came from a personal experience, right? I worked with a team and my interactions with them, I got about two hours a day because of time zones. It was very difficult for us to connect. And yet that was my team. I was supposed to connect with that team. I said, does that inhibit? The retention likelihood, even if the supervisor's stable, but if I only get two hours a day to even ask them questions, and if I have a question otherwise, I'm going to post it, I'm going to send it, I'm going to email it, whatever, whatever, but I won't hear back for a day because then you get back on that cadence. So what we looked for is supervisor time zone versus employee time zone. And is it within a three-hour band on either side so that they have the majority of their day together? so that you can be in the States and your teams can be in the States. And this came from a few reasons. It didn't just come from, hey, we shouldn't have teams in the United States managing teams in India. It came from, well, that could make some difficulty in just coordination and collaboration, which I know people like in a lot, in our culture at least. But it also said, should we facilitate more leaders in India that can manage their teams in India so that there's growth and mentorship and accessibility right in that time zone, in that region, that kind of understands the nuance of that particular culture and what have you. And what we found is that if your supervisor is within a three hour time window of you in time zones, your retention likelihood in the first two years for us is over 85% that you're going to stay. You're going to make it to two years. 85% of those folks are going to make it to two years of tenure reliably. If that supervisor is outside of that window, that drops down to 72% in the first two years. That's a big delta. And that was one insight that just to say, okay, I I, I have many theories as to why specifically, and we need more leadership, or they need this connection time, or what have you. I can argue in the other way about autonomy and being able to exist uh, without your supervisor. There's lots of ways to talk about that. But the data was pretty clear for us that said, if that supervisor is accessible in that window, you're going to stick with us longer, or there's a better chance that you will. So we've used that to guide how we assign supervisors. And just kind of where we put you to make sure that you have a support system around you that can answer your questions, especially in those first two years, first two years in a role, first two years with the organization, whatever it may be, to say, you've got a support system that's going to help you grow. And that if you do have questions, you're able to ask them without delay so that your day doesn't feel mundane or, or perhaps even wasted because you can't get a response and you feel like you've hit a roadblock. That was one insight. I'm happy to talk about a number of insights that we've used uh, on this so one was this supervisor piece but we even looked at like training mentioned, right a lot of people into LD, a lot of people go into learning development and they say i want to do these trainings and i want to do them for supervisors or unconscious bias or what have you lots of different ways to do to do trainings at our company we have a phenomenal D team but they introduced something called lead it's a first-time manager program that focuses on kind of their understanding of not just our culture but our processes and our tools as well as just some fundamental manager training on how to like conduct effective one-on-ones and how to be available for your teams. Great stuff. When managers don't take that, in their first 18 months as a new supervisor, their teams are twice as likely to attrit in their two years in the role as when managers do take those trainings. So it's been the evidence, the data to say, this is working. And sometimes, you know, sometimes philosophically, they're going to say, well, I'm going to run these trains for my managers, regardless of what the data says. And all power to you. If you have an organization that says, we believe in the philosophy, we're going to do this regardless. We trust that it'll work out. But actually see the definitive ROI on programs working out. You can take that to your CFO. You can take that to your financial teams and say, this is why we requested budget. Look at what it's doing. It's keeping your talent around. Isn't that great? And we can talk that data language. And that positive outcomes to, you know, your stickler finance team, you start to get a little bit more traction and asking them for additional resources or funding or what have you. And you get a little bit more buy-in from the business that what may otherwise be resistant to. I don't wanna do a mandatory training. I don't wanna do this training. What is it gonna help me do? I already know how to be a supervisor. Maybe. But maybe you'll pick up some tricks along the way. So these interventions we've seen really do work out. And that's just on the supervisor side. I mean, you can kind of see when to do meaningful increases, what, how to counteract kind of the economic environment, uh, especially in t- terms of high volatility. You can even incorporate things like uh, what we do really recently. Oh, Like over the past, I mean, t- two years, two and a half years with COVID, enabling a remote workforce or a hybrid workforce over a strictly in-office workforce has been really positive to some of our retention outcomes. So all of these things do matter and they help us understand how to retain people despite what the external conditions of the labor market might be doing.
1: I love the part that you mentioned about specifically a lot of the stuff, all of the stuff that you talked about is absolutely eye-opening. And I think a lot of people will gain value from this i particularly to very linked to what i do is about well, training programs that you've mentioned first of all uh, kind of the clients that i work with obviously i train their their people being supervisors middle managers senior exec teams there is always, often that objection to oh, why am i why am i here right it's a waste of my time i could i could really use this, these two hours to do something else which obviously might be fair it is fair uh, way of approaching it in, in their world so i'm not here to question that but then there's On on the other side is the HR team and me as well, justifying and showing the real value, quantifiable value of what we've delivered, right? Which is tricky. If it's not a tangible physical product, putting a price, putting a value on it, many people, myself included, find it very, very difficult. And I think, as you said, the data here would be very useful as a way and a mean of kind of showing that, justifying that that expenditure, that this is what it's been delivered, uh, particularly if in in terms of that it was delivered at the right time when the data is showing us that this would be useful here. We're not doing it just for the sake of doing it. We're not doing it as a kind of pill to alleviate a headache to, or to make ourselves feel better like us, as an organization that we're actually doing something in terms of leadership, in terms of culture, but it actually is... Needed, we're in addressing uh, a need that might not be visible, but we have indicators to show us it's, it's worth it. So it's that kind of having that foresight and, I, I guess, being proactive in addressing some of these needs. Taking it uh, broadly, as broad as you, as you'd like it to, because we focused on a lot of things in terms of how we get our data, being narrow, comparing it, uh, you know, drawing parallels with the outside world. You gave us some examples in terms of attrition and using in preventative ways and intervention ways. What have been some of the little finds uh, that you didn't expect looking at data? It can be anything, but you kind of, but you looked at it, there was a project or, or initiative that you were working on, people HR related. You looked at the data, you had your hypothesis, and it, you either discovered something that your hypothesis was completely wrong, or you've discovered something that you completely did not expect, uh, but was still very useful in whatever way, shape, or form. What have these little finds been?
0: Oh, man, it's such a good question. Uh, there's so many times where Data is going to confirm your hypothesis and you're going to feel great. You're going to pat yourself on the back and it's another great day. And there's going to be times where you look at the data and everybody you share it with, including yourself, you're like, well, this can't be right, can it? I'm going to need to revisit this. I'll give a a few keen insights that we found that I think has been pretty fascinating. And one time, we were looking at turnover and we looked at turnover and just in the, you know, I, I, I've already lamented about how I don't love turnover as a metric, but it can be helpful and I'll give an example in this instance. We looked at a team, and a pretty big team, a pretty sizable team. So this was not small 10 people. This was the better part of like 600 folks in this whole span. And we wanted to look at attrition by tenure. Um, and we saw that the folks with 10 plus years of tenure, which was, a, again, a considerable proportion, like maybe 100 folks. Zero percent turnover. Zero percent voluntary, zero percent said, Huh, that seems odd. We haven't had one loss in a year. Okay, go back two years. And I said, I was working with my analysts, go back two years and let's see. 0% turnover. We've lost nobody with over 10 years of tenure in this group for two years. That's fascinating. Okay, I, I guess it's true. We looked back, we validated it. It was true. It was accurate for whatever reason. Now I have a few ideas, but we didn't lose anybody. As I started to look at the group with less than 10 years, particularly about four to seven, we're having enormous turnover enormous turnover. It was accelerated. And you sort of saw this in juxtaposition with nobody leaving at the top at 10 plus years. And I said, well, this is chaotic and a little odd. And so what could we do given this surprise, but turn to some of our exit interviews, some of our main kind of uh, um, engagement survey results. And I, I think we may have even done a focus group no one was leaving because they were pretty comfortable. So everybody with four to seven years wasn't even necessarily ready for that jump yet, but they were looking ahead of them at these people that were not moving positions, these people that held the positions that they presumed they could grow into. And they said, I'm not going to grow here. How could I grow here? These folks that have been here for 10 years have not left. Why would I get the opportunity? What's going to open up? There's not going to be vacancies. And they left us in droves. They left us and said, I have to go elsewhere. I'm not even ready for it. And I don't want to keep investing my time building relationships for something that won't open up. Wow. That was fascinating. So it was this idea that not all attrition is bad, right? You want some attrition because it opens up opportunities for others and it keeps that funnel normal and healthy. And your tenure curves start to look normal and healthy. You're not losing all these people core to your organization that are waiting for that opportunity that will never open up. And so it led way to new programs and ways to just make sure that there were opportunities available. And just those insights alone kind of did the same thing. You see, your, you show your executives of that team and they just scratch their heads and they say, well, this can't be true, can it? I better raise my expectations on these folks so that we start to see some natural attrition. So natural attrition is a good thing, but it was really opening and showing. And that's just one.
1: Wow. So, it, it, so basically they saw a, a ceiling, a glass ceiling that they will not be able to go through. Wow. Again, a, a great example of, of looking at data in, in, in different ways. And uh, the last thing that you said, particularly could have caught my ear, is about a, not all attrition is bad, because we often tend to look at the data that, that we're going in front of, is attrition is high, Oof, bad thing. Okay, is it? Let's look at it a little bit deeper. This image comes into my mind, completely not HR related, but it's been making rounds uh, the internet in the last few months. It's basically, I think it comes from a story from the First World, First, Second World War, sorry, Second World War, where there were uh, planes that were coming back from flying over enemy territory and uh, data scientists of the time looked at where the bullet holes were and they started patching up and... Reinforcing these parts of the planes as they were building new planes to make sure that the bullets don't penetrate these areas and then somebody said, "Well have you and obviously these concentrated in several areas and there were several areas where there were no bullets at all and then somebody had the bright idea to say, Well have you thought that some of the plane or the planes that did get shot in these areas did not make it back, and that's the actual areas you should be reinforcing in that particular plane and you think about it this is it, when when I look at it, I just wanted to say, "Duh!" It is so obvious, but then it's not, is it? And this is a, the attrition part. As, as you mentioned, is that no no attrition? Not all attrition is bad. You want to have some of it. It's just the part of natural cycle of uh, people wanting uh, to move on, needing to move on for different reasons, and it's about separating uh, that data. So that's that's an amazing uh, little little find that you had, which turned out to be quite big.
0: How, how many of us
1: wouldn't be in a position where we're at, or wouldn't have had an opportunity that we've had
0: because the person above us never left? Attrition has probably many careers. And allowed us ways to grow up, but attrition is a very personal thing. When people on your team leave, you're like, "Oh, this is enormous, and the volume's high, and this must be, the sky must be falling." And often it isn't. Often it's the same opportunity to add new people and grow your team that that love you to grow. You know, it just is. It, it's it's not losing everybody at once, and it's certainly not losing your performers. There's goals to attrition. The goal isn't to drop it to zero.
1: I'd like to make this uh, as much as we can practical for for our. Uh, listeners. They've got wealth of knowledge already out of that. They, I think there's already a few things that you've mentioned that can be classed as practical. So looking at the data in a narrow sense, uh, looking at using it to, uh, coming into using the data with a hypothesis, correlating the data with not just your organization, but what, elsewhere, what, what what's going on there. Okay, we've, we've got that. If there's an organization that wants to use data in a more productive and efficient and useful way, but they don't have that full capacity, don't have a data science team as such, they want to start on that. They want to to do some of that. Apart from the things that we've just mentioned, what other advice you could give them to kind of get things out there to utilize what they've got or what, what to gather in a more productive way?
0: Yeah, I think so many organizations, when they hear data analytics or data scientists, they think, well, yeah, we're going to get predictive. We should be predictive. Let's say don't start there. So many organizations, there's such a high cost of entry if you want to be very rigorous with your data analytics. And by all means, if you want to grow there and mature there, do that. But I say start really small, start really simple, ask really simple questions and make sure you can answer them. I think that the best path to impact is from low sophistication, but high application versus trying to go. Super sophisticated versus with low application. I'll give you an example. When I joined the organization with now, if I came in the door and said, hey, we're going to do Kaplan Meyer survival analytics using this model, they'd be like, Great, yeah, that's super advanced. What do we do with it? We wouldn't have had the capacity or the education or kind of just the appetite to have any impact at that time. We had to grow there. So for organizations, figure out what questions are being asked of your HR team. And can you answer that with your existing data set? Start small, start applicable. Don't go mature too quickly because otherwise you're going to be doing stuff that they're going to say, well, this is a huge investment in HR that doesn't seem worth it. We're not getting impact out of it. We're not getting results out of it. Of course you're not. You you haven't built the acumen to get there yet. So start small. Things like turnover, it's a pretty accessible metric. That's why I won't disparage it too much. That's a great start point. It's a lot. But start small and figure out your business questions, Uh, the business questions that would be better served if HR was involved in the conversation. Because too often, things like headcount planning and workforce planning, they go directly to finance. And finance has some great insights there, right? They're doing the budgeting. And that's, by all means, they're going to help you tell that story. HR should be in that conversation. They should be in the room. They should be at the table. Use the cliche, I suppose. But you can only do that if you are starting that conversation. You don't need a data scientist even to start with something as small as turnover. And there's a whole handful of resources if you want to get some of the like, tools and technologies to help you with this. Or if you have a you know core data system like a Workday or successfactor or some of these things that capture your data, they usually will have something at a base level to get you started. And as that appetite grows, you might be able to grow that team or grow that sophistication and acumen out. If not, there's people that can come help you. There's consultants to have you. But that's if you want to get super advanced super quickly. Don't mature too quickly. Start with the application. And that's kind of what we had our path to impact. That's what I'd recommend to any organization. Don't, don't overdo it with data scientists too quickly. And that's coming from a data scientist. Um, we can be really annoying if you let us go, uh, if you let us go crazy too early. Um, but if, if you kind of put some guardrails up as what needs to be accomplished, uh, I think you'll, you'll be better for it. Your organization will be better for it.
1: I love that advice. I think that's it's brilliant. Starting small um, rather than uh, going big and actually not knowing what to to do, the results, and uh, eating up a lot of the resources that you've got available. So I think uh, that's that's fantastic advice. Thank you very much for that, Nick. Um, In the next few months, any initiatives, any projects, anything that you are working on that you can't wait to get your teeth into or you can't wait to see results or some of these little finds that might show up that you didn't expect – What's happening for you uh, in the months in the next few months to come?
0: Yeah, so a lot of this is within our my current organization, kind of what we're doing um, on the, in the people analytics team, that I'm really excited about. It. I'll give two quick examples. One is data analytics is only as powerful as your support team, in HR, and a lot of your HR business partners and your HR team needs to understand data because if you go over their heads and you don't involve them, then you're not going to have much traction. We've spent a lot of time in the last few months, and we're going to continue in the next few months on what we call. People analytics, education, and enablement, it makes it so that we're not the ones going in and doing all the work and making all the impact with our insights because we're too small to do that. Uh, we need our business partners to help be data-driven as well. So we're getting them comfortable with data and meeting them where they are. We do quarterly what we call people analytics touch points. We meet with them and say, well, what problems are you having? What do you need to answer? What can we help you answer? Um, and it meets them at their maturity level, their understanding level. We kind of build that that shared knowledge together. We give them data, they give us context, we tell a better story as a team, and it makes them better kind of emissaries, so to speak, of people analytics, and they become ambassadors. That's been hugely successful. We're going to continue doing that, just refining it to get to make it further. Now, when I What I'm excited about on the data side is there's a lot going on in diversity and equity and inclusion right now, as there should be, probably long overdue uh, in in HR and to be data driven even more so. Um, We're doing some cool stuff. I think it makes intuitive sense. You're going to hear a lot about how it makes sense. You're going to be better suited to have a diverse team because it's the right thing to do, have a more diverse team. What we're trying to do, at least internally, is prove that it's also a competitive advantage to have a diverse team in performance and retention and productivity and in innovation these things that are somewhat self-reported and some we're just going to know inherent to the data what does it mean to have a diverse team and do you get benefits from that so we're doing some cool stuff there uh using some some modeling out of uh biodiversity so really fascinating i have an analyst on my team who had just has an unbelievable passion for it and he's taken this and just kind of run with it very exciting stuff and i think the last piece is I'm going to continue to try and just build this out on LinkedIn for myself because people analytics can be dull. Analytics in general, math can be dull. I want to make it exciting. It can be exciting. It should be exciting. ways that your company thrive and your people at your company thrive through using data-driven insights. So trying to just get that out beyond our shared insights that we do internally, trying to get that out to other people and, and hope that I can learn from them and they might be able to learn from some of the things we've done so to make people happier and, and keep them sticking
1: around. Definitely. Because so many people are overwhelmed with data they don't know what to do. That's part of the problem what, what we started off with. We, we've got so much data we don't know what to do with it and, and I think it's getting to that point of oh, bloody hell I've got so much of it I don't know what to do and we let it stagnate or, and we don't utilize and you know it goes out to date and, and, and then we've got the ethical things that we didn't get into uh, which as, as I said earlier it would be easy to have a separate episode on, on all of that and I think there was a lot more valuable insight that you share with us and the hope that I started this episode with to learn a lot more about data and kind of start making more sense and connect some of the dots and use it in ways that I would never thought I got. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for sharing your uh, experiences and everything that you, you did. And also thank you for not charging for this because it, and it was an absolute gold of information. So genuinely, genuinely uh, a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you so much. This is great. It's me again. Just one more thing before you take off. Head over to human.pm forward slash we got this. That's all one word, where you can find this and previous episodes show notes, suggest a guest or topic, ask a question or join the community of other listeners. Until next time.